Who did this? Who did this? Now that's a line that my kids sure hate me saying. (laughs) Who did this? (laughs) You know, I'm working over in the next room at my home office and I hear a loud crash in the next room. And the next thing I know I run in there, I say that line, who did this? And then my three young daughters machine gun fired three different versions of what just happened. All at once, by the way. I asked a simple question, but what I got in return was not simple. The same could be said of Good Friday when we ask the question, who did this? When we look upon in our mind's eye our Savior upon the cross and ask, who did this? The ultimate answer, when you think about it, is neither simple nor intuitive, but it is remarkably profound and worth our pondering this evening. Because like the incident with my children, there's no shortage of partial answers to the question. I mean, after all, the Pharisees and Sadducees, in their jealousy, riled up the crowd and made all kinds of false charges against Christ. But Jesus is always able to outwit the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their scheming. So to say it was the fault of the Pharisees and Sadducees seems inadequate. Furthermore, you know, we say Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We put it in our creeds, as I know many of the traditions represented here tonight do and recite regularly. But in John 19, Jesus said we would ha- he would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So I find that answer inadequate, or at least not whole. Even Judas, when you think about it, was not stopped by Jesus at the, when he had the opportunity, knowing full well what he was going to do. But as Reverend Vincent so beautifully worded it last night, Jesus even washed his feet and later would tell him, what you were going to do, do quickly instead. So even the son of perdition is not the full answer to this question. I must ask again, who did this? Who is ultimately responsible for the events of Good Friday? Well, the truth is there are two answers that together form an adequate answer. And they are none of the above that I have so far spoke of. And the truth is, the answer is like one of those paintings that you look at and there's two images in it. Have you guys ever seen one of those? You know, you look at it and at first you see, uh, I don't know, what uh, a vase. And then you look a little bit harder and then you see two people's faces in the same thing. All the same data is still there. It's the same picture, but you see two different sides of it. And the amazing thing is if you're like me, and once you see that other side of it than the one that you first saw, you appreciate it all the more as you can appreciate every last nuance of the painting before you. The same is true of what we are uncovering in the scriptures tonight. So with that in mind, the first adequate answer, the first part of it at least, is to say when asked the question, who did this? Who is responsible for our Savior on the cross? Is to say me. It's us. It's our sin that did this. 
1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. You think about it, had we never sinned, no one ever would have died, much less our Savior on the cross. God told us that death itself is a consequence for sin. So when I look upon the cross, I see the consequences of my sin. When I see Jesus in my mind's eye bleeding and dying, I see myself and the consequences and the cause of my own sins and transgressions. I see my fault. And here's another thought while we're pondering this. The extent of the solution tells us something about the extent of the problem. The extent of the solution tells us the extent of the problem. Here's what I mean by that. I mean, I used to work in a warehouse where, uh, you know, little nicks and knacks happen all the time. You bump into somebody by accident. You buff the thing out. Everyone goes out about their day. No harm, no foul, we used to say. Somebody bumped, you know, bumped one of the beams. Whoever had a wrench in their car would fix it, and we'd all go about our day. But then there was a time somebody busted the water main pipe. That was a different incident altogether, where it, it was probably minutes, but it felt like seconds from the incident. Suddenly, the police were there. The fire department was there. Every high-level executive in the company that I've never even met before is there. And we're all working together after the building is cleared, funneling all the water out of the building. The entire building is mobilized. And the sh frankly, the plant was shut down for two days as we're working as hard as we can to salvage what wasn't waterlogged and destroyed. Now, I, and after all of that happened, I could only imagine what it was like to be the forklift driver that caused that. To look upon all of these teams mobilized to clean up his mistake. And I can only imagine what he must have felt. And my friends, tonight, we experience a piece of that as we look upon the cross. Because how much more when we look upon the cross and see what our sins did, we feel a portion of that. A portion of that shame, the portion of that shock, the, a portion of, I caused this. And all of that felt together. And as we do so, realizing that it took the Son of God himself to go through the events of Good Friday to pay for my sins, that tells me all that I need to know about how truly unrighteous my works are when compared to a holy and perfect God. And devastates any notions that I'm basically a good person in light of what I have viewed on Calvary's cross. And that ought to be the first image we see when we look upon the cross. Because we need to understand the bad news before we can fully understand how good the good news is on Good Friday. Because the other side of that coin... The other side of that image, if you will, is that the other person responsible for what happened at Golgotha was God himself. It was God's plan from the beginning to do this. John, Jesus said it himself in John 10, 18. Speaking of his life, no one takes it from me. 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So in other words, it wasn't the schemes of man that did this. The cross was God's plan from the beginning to save his people. And the Old Testament testifies time after time of this lamb that would be slain in our place time after time after time. Just to give a quick example, does anybody remember what the first thing to die in the Bible was? It's a trick question because it wasn't able. The trick question is before the dreaded account of Genesis 3 is even over, God killed an animal to provide a covering of skin for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. Even though the promise was that you shall surely die if they had sinned, and indeed they did, something else died in their place first to provide a covering for their shame. Does that sound like someone else you know from the scriptures? Sin has been around in a full chapter in Genesis. They, they haven't even left the garden yet, and God is already foreshadowing that someone is going to take your place. Someone will provide a covering for you. The good news is right there from the beginning of the bad news. And the rest of Scripture testifies of this reality. A few chapters later in Genesis 22, Abraham offered up his only son as an offering. And where the son laid down his life, being reckoned dead for three days on the, on the trip from where they began to Mount Moriah, which, by the way, was later renamed Golgotha. Isn't that interesting? That where Abraham laid down his only son would be the same exact geographical location that God himself would lay down his son. Except this time the knife did not get stopped. But God took, made the sacrifice for us on our behalf. Even in the Genesis account, by the way, what happened? How did that story end? It wasn't Isaac who was killed, but the ram was laid down in his place that was found in the thicket. Again, this theme of a substitute being made on our behalf. I could go on forever through the scriptures, but I'm going to make just one more point that people miss the point when reading the story of Joseph a few chapters after that thinking that the high point of that story was when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. It is I, it is not the Egyptian uh, second in command, it is I, Joseph. The The high point of that narrative took place just before that, where Judah, the one whom the Messiah would come from, the one whom the line of David would emerge, said, no, let me die in the place of Benjamin, my brother. Sound familiar? Again, the place of one life for another, a sacrifice for another. This theme is all throughout the scriptures, including just before the cross. One of the last things to take place before the crucifixion was that Barabbas was let go in the place of Christ. 
Right up until the very end, this narrative emerges clear as day for us. And my friends, as we consider that, this good news of that the righteous dying in the place of the wicked, that a substitute would be made, as we consider this truth, that is the good news of Good Friday. That God has loved you enough to send his own son on the cross to be the all-satisfying substitute to set you also free from your sins forevermore. That on the cross, God treated Christ as if he had lived my life of sin and taking the wrath for me taking my punishment accordingly so that he would treat me as if I had lived Christ's life of righteousness. And so, in other words, if I believe that Jesus did that for me tonight and turn from the sin that sent him there, from that first side of the coin, committing to follow him, then I have the assurance of all the scriptures, going back to the first chapters, that I can have peace with God that I can be justified to a holy and perfect God, not through my own righteousness, but through his. So to make sense of those two sides of the image real quickly, some of us perhaps do need to focus our eyes on that first side, to feel the, the condemnation and guilt of the cross. As we first consider this, to look upon the cross and see the horror that our sins have caused. It is not a small thing. And I pray that what you feel as you consider that causes you to recognize your need for a Savior this evening. Causes us to recognize the inadequacy of our own good works to be justified before a holy and perfect God. As we and that we would respond to God's incredible display of love and grace through faith and repentance. And I say that because my prayer is that you don't continue to feel any guilt or shame or condemnation tonight, because you don't have to. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the same cross that when looking upon it, thinking about what it had done to Jesus and all the shame, guilt, and sorrow it brings, it's the very vehicle that has removed our sins, our sorrow, our shame, and our condemnation forever. As far as the east is from the west, as the psalmist said. So here's what I mean by that. Good Friday for the Christian for those of you who are gathered here tonight who know what you know, who have entered into a soul-satisfying rest of Jesus Christ, who believe in him from the heart, who believe that Jesus went to the cross the same way that you guys are sitting in these pews this evening and have turned from your sins and committed your life to him, those of you who identify that way, it's not to, when we consider Good Friday... It's not about feeling bad about what happened 2,000 years ago. That's not the point of this service. And I hope we understand that. Because when done incorrectly, a service, a gathering like this, it can become a bit of a guilt trip when done incorrectly. 
And this becomes our annual pilgrimage to come out and feel bad about what we did, causing Jesus to go to the cross. And as if the act of feeling bad over our sins somehow atones for it. But that's not the message of the scriptures. Rather, I believe that to, I believe that to be a lie from the enemy to dilute the message, the power, and the forgiveness that we're meant to experience at the cross of Jesus. But today, to put it in perspective, when I consider the cross, when I consider what Jesus has done for me, taking my sin, my cross, my shame. The overwhelming emotion that I feel as I consider these things isn't guilt. It isn't shame. But it's love. It's gratefulness. It's gratitude. It's joy. It's wonder. It's thankfulness. It's a heart that just is exploding with gratitude over what Jesus has done for us. Words fail to describe the joy that I feel knowing what I deserve, knowing that I deserved the cross, not Christ. And to consider the heavens above that Christ has purchased for me. That is why today is called Good Friday. That is the good news that we have tonight. I personally reject the notion that Good Friday is the bad news and Easter is the good news. Because otherwise we call today Bad Friday. The truth is they are two sides of a beautiful coin. Because God can, even God can take the greatest evil and make the greatest good come from it. Only God can do that. Because yes, it was the greatest injustice ever committed to have a sinless man, the only sinless man, die a criminal's death on the cross. But at the same time, the greatest justice was served at the same time. Where all the sins of every person who would ever believe were paid for on the cross. Where the sins of the whole world were paid for. So guys, I hope you're hearing what I'm saying tonight, church. Because to focus on our sin, our guilt, our wrongdoings at a Good Friday service is only half the picture. If you leave here tonight focused on you, on what you did, we've missed the point. We've believed a man-centered view of the cross. And believing, perhaps even subconsciously, that Good Friday was caused by the schemes of man and their wickedness, all the evil of the world combining together to stop Jesus. But that's not what I see in the scriptures. I see that today was the fulfillment of the love, the justice, and the goodness of God, where Christ went in my place to buy my redemption, that as we've said before, is, was the plan set out in scripture from the beginning. Because God loves you that much. So with that, I have one final thought and then I'll conclude. I had a family member some time ago attend a church service with me. And, you know, they come from a different branch of Christianity than one that's represented here tonight. Let's put it that way. And... 
as is often the case when people observe services that they're not comfortable with or that they haven't gone to before. They do more observation than participating. That's understandable. You're feeling it out. Even now, many of you are feeling out this Presbyterian guy. It is what it is. But as this family member of mine observed, and he heard the people in the pews singing, not out of some kind of obligation, but out of joy, out of a response of gratitude of what Christ has done for us, he took notice of that. When the people uh, read, were, when, the, when the sermon began and the people in the pews turned to the scriptures and followed along, that was shocking to them. And perhaps most shocking to this person in their tradition, after the service concluded, everyone stuck around. It amazed him. These people actually want to be together? And he told me afterwards, in summation, he said, John, I've never been to a church service like this before. You know, the church I come to feels like a funeral. Everyone is sad. The message is made to make me feel guilty, and everyone just looks so melancholy. But this church feels like a celebration. And my friends, tonight, if you hear nothing else, that is the correct response to the gospel. It is joy. It is celebration of what Christ has done for me. As we remember and worship the God who loved me enough to die for me, who did not conquer sin and death in spite of the cross. He conquered through it. Thanks be to God.